Carl and I, as we just discussed a little bit uh, before we came on to the class, we've just done a bit of a trip up North Queensland and I was staying in a, a unit up there and I turned on the TV and uh, it had, I think it was Foxtel or something that I hadn't seen before, so I was able to flick through these channels. And I came onto a channel that was purely a religious channel for one particular religion. And I don't know whether any of you have heard of this person by the name of Jimmy Swaggart. <laughs> uh, it was all about, they claimed they had the Holy Spirit, all the songs and all the rock music. And I watched it for a couple of minutes. Gail was watching it with me. And then this Jimmy Swaggart, who's a multi-billionaire, made a lot of money out of this in America, comes out, his son comes out and he says, now he's going to do an exposition on Acts chapter two. And I thought, well, this is good. Um, we'll listen to this. Well, he, I think he said about three words. He said, uh, now we've got the spirit, just like they had in, in Acts chapter two. And he said, you can feel it here today. And that was it. So it was, it was really a big letdown. But of course, that's the way the world and that's the way Christianity treats Acts chapter two. They believe that outpouring the Holy Spirit, that they've got it today. And they really don't look at their Bibles. What we're going to do tonight is obviously something completely different to that. It's going to be a very close look at Peter's first address at Pentecost in Acts chapter two. And we're going to see how closely, how much Peter actually expounded the Old Testament scriptures and how much that fits into Acts chapter two. And for us to understand Acts chapter two, we have to understand the teaching of, of these Old Testament passages, which we would all understand. So let's just get started. And we, we just finished our last class over a couple of weeks ago in, in Acts chapter 2 and verse, if we just pick it up in the words of verses 16 and 17, Peter was talking about the prophecy of Joel. And he says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 16, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So as you can see on the screen there, the last days can refer to the last days of Judah's commonwealth, and it also refers to the second coming of Christ to establish the kingdom of God. So two time periods referred to in scriptures as the last days or the latter days. And when it uses the word prophecy, doesn't necessarily mean about forecasting the future. It means to speak from the scriptures to, for edification and comfort, not necessarily foretelling the future. So those words that were spoken there in Acts 2 were spoken on the day of Pentecost. But the prophecy, the prophecy comes from Joel chapter 2. And in the words in Joel chapter 2, as you can see on the screen there, are really what we would call post-Armageddon. They will be fulfilled in their entirety after Armageddon because it says there, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. So if you compare those two, you can see on the screen there, they're similar, but one is post Armageddon and Pentecost, as we've already pointed out, is just an earnest or a first outpouring of that spirit. Now, 
Peter, in his prophecy, in, in his words in Acts chapter 2, he omits some of Joel's words. He, he pointedly omit, omits part of the words in verse 32, and he, he quotes the final words, and we've got the words on the screen. In I'll just move this out of the way. Over here. And it shall, so Joel chapter 2 verse 32 says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of Yahweh shall be delivered. And then I've got in red, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as Yahweh hath said, and in the remnant whom Yahweh shall call. Now those words in red, Peter doesn't cite them because those words will only be fulfilled when Christ comes and he establishes himself in Jerusalem. So the words in Jerusalem shall be deliverance are admitted. And Peter does this because it's part of Joel's prophecy and it relates to the second coming of Christ. So Joel chapter two is a two part prophecy, the earnest of the spirit and then the final outpouring of the, of the spirit. The prophecy in the part that was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, where it says in the words in verse 19, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapour of smoke. Peter quotes that from Joel chapter 2, but it's a reference to the last days of Judah's commonwealth, not a reference to what would happen to Jerusalem in the latter days when Christ comes again. It's a reference to the last days of Jewish commonwealth. So there were signs in the Jewish heavens, the blood and fire and vapor of smoke for the destruction of, of uh, Jerusalem and the commonwealth of Israel in AD 10. It says, and the sun shall be turned to darkness. So the sun is a, a symbol of the ruling powers. It affected all those who were in control in Judea, the, the ruling controlling powers of Judaism and at the crucifixion the land was turned into darkness for three hours which was a precursor of what God would do to the Jewish authorities for 2,000 years for rejecting his son the son of righteousness they were veiled in darkness and they still are until the Lord Jesus Christ will finally reveal himself to them and it says the moon would be turned to blood now when it uses the moon in scripture it's a reference to the ecclesiastical system. The moon is a reflector. It's a faithful reflector of the sun's light. So when we look up on a night, when we see a clear night and a full moon, it tells us the sun is shining on the other side of the earth. And so the ecclesia should reflect the sun of righteousness in a dark world. And of course, those words, the principle is based upon the words in Psalm 89 where the spirit says, once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David, his seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever as the moon, as a faithful witness in the heaven. So the spirit is saying that the moon is a faithful witness that the sun is shining on the other side of the earth and the ecclesia should be a faithful witness that the sun of righteousness is going to dawn on this earth and there will be a new day coming. But if it's turned to blood or if it's blackened, it's been polluted or it's suffered bloodshed. So in the scriptures, the moon symbolic language represents the ecclesiastical systems, whether it's Judaism 
or the church systems, but in this instance, in Acts chapter 2, it's Judaism. So it represents the calamities that would fall the religious system of Judaism. And the words in Acts go on to say, and shall be, this shall, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord is come. So this symbolic effect of, of the sun and the moon, which was the days of AD 70, would happen before the notable, the great and notable day of the Lord, which is outlined in Zechariah chapter 12 and Zechariah chapter 14, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth and the day of Yahweh when his judgments will be found and felt in the earth. So it's before that. So Acts chapter 2 belongs to those days. So let's just, I'd like you to come back with me now to the prophecy in Joel chapter 2, because it is a latter day prophecy, and I want you to see that. In Joel chapter 2, and in verse 20, now we know that in the scriptures you always have a historical footprint in prophecy, and then you'll have a fulfillment of that prophecy. The historical footprint was when Babylon did take Judah and these things befell the nation of Judah in the days when Babylon took her. But the, the prophetic side of it into the future is the impression we're trying to get across to you now. So in verse 20 we read, but I'll remove far off from you the northern army, which was the Babylonians in the days of Joel, but in the days when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, it will be the Gogian host, but I will remove far off from you the northern army and will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea and his hinder part toward the utmost sea and his stink shall come up and his ill savour shall come up because he hath done great things. So it's a reference to the northern army that will be destroyed. And of course, we know that uh, Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel 39 it says the, the noses of the people will be stopped, not that there will be a stink, but they will be awestruck by the destruction that has happened to the Gogian host. So it's a latter-day prophecy. Verses 21 to 27 deal with Israel being gathered into the, their land, saving the tents of Judah first, those that are in, in the land first, and then regathering Israel, and the land is restored, and the work of restitution of the kingdom of God on the earth commences. So we read in verse 21, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for Yahweh will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad, therefore, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in Yahweh your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. So it's the work of restitution after Christ comes and the Northern army is destroyed. And after that, the spirit will be rained upon them. Now we read those words in verses 28 to 29, and it shall come to pass Afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days, I will pour out my spirit. 
Now, when we read those words, we might get the idea, well, is that a think, is that a reference to all of Israel? It, it has to be in harmony with the rest of the teaching of Scripture. It will not be, God's Spirit will not be poured, on, poured out on all Israel. Only upon the remnant who respond and who accept the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, we're not going to turn to the passages now, but we've got plenty of passages in the Scriptures Ezekiel chapter 20, where it tells us that the rebels will be purged out, that only those who adhere to the principles, the bond of the, will be brought in under the bond of the covenant, that means they will be baptized into Christ, they'll accept Christ, that the Spirit will be poured out on them. And that will be a process of time. It's not going to happen straight away. And of course, those words are reinforced when we read in verse 32 of this chapter. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of Yahweh shall be delivered. So it's, God's only going to pour out his spirit on those who call on Yahweh's name. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as Yahweh hath said, and in the remnant whom Yahweh shall call. So of course, the remnant are those who come to accept Christ, which will be surprisingly and tragically only a very small number, I believe, from the teaching of Scripture. Only about one-tenth, perhaps, will really be saved out of all Israel. It'll be a, four, a year, 40 years' work of the regathering of the second exodus. They'll be brought back, but those that are brought back and are baptised into Christ, we're told the Scriptures are telling us that they will be given the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it then says that what would happen in this prophecy in the words of verses 30 and 31, the sun shall be turned unto darkness and the moon unto blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord shall come. Oh, sorry, verse 30, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth and blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Primary appetite, the first application we've already seen is AD 70. But as you can see on the screen, now this happens after Armageddon, after Israel has turned to God. And it's the Roman Babylon that will be thrown down. I've got on the screen there a reference to Revelation chapter 19. We won't turn to it, but there in Revelation chapter 19, it talks about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints who go forth to sacrifice the, the, the power of Rome for the nations of the world. It will be destroyed, thrown down. And that's, that's where this prophecy in the latter days fits. And then finally it says, once the kingdom has been established and the Lord Jesus Christ has secured his position on his throne in Jerusalem, then all those who appeal to the king will be delivered. They will be saved. And we read those words in verse 32, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of Yahweh shall be delivered for in Mount Zion, where that beautiful temple is going to be built, and the Lord Jesus Christ will sit on his throne. In Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as Yahweh hath said, and in the remnant whom Yahweh shall call. Now, we'll, we'll look at those words a little bit closer about the calling a little bit later as we move on through Acts. But it's a reference to the remnant of Israel that will be saved. So here in Joel chapter 2, we've got a primary meaning, primary application or first part application to AD 70, but a latter-day application to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I've done, I've then broken that down for you. To two screens 
and the two the on the one screen, but you can see the the two opposing or not opposing, but two different emphasis: the early rain and the latter rain. Early rain on the left hand side of the screen, and the outpouring of the latter rain in the kingdom on the right hand side of the screen. Based on the words of Joel chapter two verse twenty three, be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in Yahweh your God. For he hath given you the former rain moderately. Now you might remember when we did our last class, we said that the former rain moderately meant a teacher of righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ would be a teacher and the saints would be teachers of righteousness. The apostles were teachers of righteousness. And he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. So there's two rains, the former rain, which fell in AD 7 in the days of the apostle in Acts chapter 2, in the days of the apostle Peter and the, the apostle Paul, and the latter rain when the kingdom is established and the Lord Jesus Christ is in the earth. So when we look at that on the screen now, for the early rain and the latter rain, the early rains fell in September. They were known in Israel as the former rains. September, October, about the period we're in now. Now, I believe today is the Jewish New Year, by the way. Yom Kippur. In Yom Kippur. Today is the Jewish New Year. Uh, and very exciting times, really. The latter rains fell during November and January. They were called the latter rains. The early rains fell to soften the ground and to prepare it for planting. But the latter rains fell to ensure that once the, the seed had come up through the ground as small plants that they received enough rain for the, the plant to develop and the grain to develop to its full strength. So that's the latter rain. God in his mercy had provided that in the land of Israel. The former rain moderately speaks, as I've just said, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the apostles. The latter rain in the first month speaks of the blessings of the word of God that are to fall upon natural Israel and upon the world, but upon natural Israel in the kingdom. Peter said, this is that spoken of by the prophet Joel in the last days I'll pour out my spirit. Of course, we've already pointed out that that's the last days of Judah's commonwealth. But Joel says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit. After all of these things, I will pour out my spirit after Israel have come to know Yahweh their God. Israel didn't even know Yahweh their God when the Lord Jesus Christ was in the earth, when the apostle Peter was preaching to them. They, they, had to, they didn't know Yahweh their God. There will come a day when Israel will know their God and they shall never be ashamed, as it says in Ezekiel and Joel chapter 2. That early reign in the days of the apostle Peter was the earnest of the spirit or that we might remember we call that the down payment or the deposit, the first payment of the spirit. But the full outpouring of the spirit on Israel, well, that's on the remnant, on those who accept Christ, will be when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and the, the, they accept the principles of the, the covenant and are baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ, they will receive the full outpouring of the spirit. There were wonders in heaven and earth, which was the judgment of AD 70. But the wonders in heaven and earth of the latter reign are the judgments upon the political 
and the religious systems of the world. It's still the sun, the ruling powers. It's still the, the moon, which is the ecclesiastical systems of Babylon and the world. They will be turned to darkness and to blood and vapor and smoke. The early rain says it would be before the great and notable day or the memorial, memorable day of the Lord. In Zechariah or in the latter rain, the, the great, it would be before the great and terrible or the fearful day of the Lord. So the day in Acts chapter 2 is AD 70 and the day in the latter rain speaks of the time of the great judgments of Zechariah chapter 12 and Zechariah chapter 14. In Acts chapter 2 it says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whereas Joel says that, that those whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in addition to that, in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. It's not there today, but when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, people will be able to go there hear the teaching of the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ and be delivered. Can't do that today. Peter says, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And of course, I said, I'm going to expand that a little bit more a little later. But the, the coming to the truth is a call. We respond to the call of the word of God. Those who hear the, listen, the word of God, hear the call and respond to the word of God have accepted that call. Same principle applies to those in the latter rain, but it will be also in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. I've got a connection there with Romans chapter 11, which we would know quite well deals with natural Israel, that some of them will eventually turn to Christ and they too will be saved because they will accept. They will be the remnant that will accept the Lord Jesus Christ along with us, the Gentiles. All right, so in fairly detailed explaining that, now we come to another question. Why was the Spirit outpoured at Pentecost? Why did they need the power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? Luke records what Jesus told the disciples after he was raised from the dead. On the way to Emmaus, Jesus opened up the scriptures so as to make their hearts burn. He was able to open up all the Old Testament passages of scriptures and see things that they wondered, well, we should have seen that before, but they saw all these wonderful things that the scriptures now held. But now in Acts, the apostles are to testify to the Jews that the Jesus who they crucified was really the Messiah. Now, the apostles believed that, obviously, but the Jews didn't. And this was the challenge. This is one of the reasons why they were given the power of the Holy Spirit, that they could convince the Jews that the Lord Jesus Christ was the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. But the challenge was to put the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead into the framework of Old Testament revelation. They had to prove that this man that had been raised from the dead was the man that was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. And they were given the power of the Holy Spirit that they might meet the challenges that they would meet on the way, that they might be able to open up the scriptures and that they might be able to, in tongues, speak to many people. And, and many people did come to a knowledge of the truth through the, that great work. So it was necessary for the apostles to be empowered to open up the significance 
of the Old Testament scriptures in order to show that the death and resurrection of Jesus was according to the divine plan that had been revealed in the Old Testament writings. So what they're about to do now in Acts chapter 2, they're going to show them that what we're saying to you, what you're hearing now in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, really has already been revealed. It's already been opened up in the scriptures, but you haven't seen it. And so Peter now opens up in his first address to start to explain that to the people in his delivery now on the day of Pentecost. He lifts up his voice and he started to speak to the people. Now, as we go through this address, and I've mentioned this briefly already, that there's a lot of doctrines involved in what Peter is saying. So when we come to, you know, we, we say that Jew, many people were baptised and people accepted the truth, but they had to understand the fundamental doctrines of the truth. It wasn't just a matter of saying, I put up my hand and believe, on the, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had to accept these doctrines and understand the, and these doctrines are outlined here in Acts chapter 2. Now, when we come, come back to Acts chapter 2, I'm still in Joel chapter 2, but I'll just come back to Acts chapter 2. Firstly, Peter's going to show that what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ, what happened with this man that was raised from the dead, was a fulfilment of Bible prophecy. And he, he does that by explaining in verses 14 to 19 of Acts chapter 2. Because he says, we've already said, look, these men are not drunken, verse, six, verse 15. But he says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It's already in your your scriptures of truth, you Jews, you should know this. And then he goes on throughout his speech and he, he details some of these fundamental things which are part of our statement of faith. He deals with the mortality of man, for example, in verse 27, where it says, because thou wilt not leave my soul, which they would understand to be the living creature, uh, a, a person that had died, I will not leave my soul in, and thanks very much, Martin, for not reading hell. I thought that was good. Would not leave my soul in the grave, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So, and also it's repeated again in verse 31. He's seeing therefore before of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in the grave, neither his flesh did see corruption. So they're reinforcing the point they're teaching about Christ, the Messiah, but they're also reinforcing the point that man's mortal. He goes back to the grave and he just corrupts away. It's also teaching that there is hope through the resurrection. We've seen those words there already uh, in verse 28. Thou hast made me to know the ways of life and thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance in response to not leaving him in the grave. Verses 29 and verse 34 Reinforce that again. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he himself said, Yahweh said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. So they were teaching a resurrection. They taught that Jesus did not pre-exist in verse 30. Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God would, had sworn with an oath that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Christ had to be born as the seed promised, come through the loins of David, 
he did not pre-exist. That Messiah was to be subordinate to the Father. He wasn't part of the Trinity. Verses 32 and 34 again. Verse 32. Therefore, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Jesus, God's raised this Jesus up. Not the same person. He's subordinate to the Father. Verse 34. For David is for Yahweh said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Yahweh is speaking to David's Lord, and he's saying, Sit on my right hand. He's subordinate to the Father. And of course, that the Lord Jesus Christ would return to reign on David's throne. He was the one, he was the Messiah promised to reign on David's throne. Verse 30, once again, uh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Verses 35 and 36. So very important doctrinal points come through in Acts chapter 2. And as Christadelphians, you know, we, we, we need to, to sort of be so grateful that we understand this because when we listen to this Jimmy Swaggart, and they've got no idea about the doctrines of the Bible, but it's so important to us. And it was so important in the first century that we understand that baptism salvation is all contingent upon a correct understanding of the doctrines of the truth so we know what we're being baptized into we know what death is we understand what the bible is teaching I mentioned all this before too that the prophecy was based on a fulfillment of prophecy that it was an indicative of an approaching crisis there was a need for personal salvation the Lord Jesus Christ was the manifestation of God in Israel and the death of Jesus was sacrificial. And then once again, doctrinal points that come out of this uh, speech of Peter's, that he rose from the dead, revealing the way of life, that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. And the prophecy demands that he who rose from the dead should reign on David's throne. And prophecy requires that he ascend into heaven until the time of his return and that salvation is only possible through Jesus Christ. So quite a statement of faith, if you like, based on many of the fundamental truths that we hold there in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, we now read these words. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now this word saved in verse 21 is the connecting thought between the words of Joel and what Peter had to say next. Joel had said that in his prophecy. But Peter's now going to explain just what had been given to make effective that salvation. What is it that God gave that that salvation might be effective? Well, he says in verse 22, he says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. He's the one that God's going to has used through whom you will be saved. He make, Peter makes that connection point. He's also making the point that you men who may not accept that Jesus Christ was Son of God knew that he did miracles, knew that he was a man of wonder and sign. And so Peter now affirms three things 
of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he does that for our sake, but he does it for those Jews that are listening there also. He says that he was a man approved of God amongst them by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him. He says he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God whom they had taken and by wicked hands crucified and slain him. And by the way, not even every Christadelphian understands point number two, that it was by the determinate counsel of God, yet Peter's making that point. This was determined by God that Jesus Christ should die this way. And that thirdly, he was raised up by God, having loosed him from the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be hold of it. So Peter's now presenting his argument based on these three premises, if you like, that this man, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one through whom salvation is obtained. And these, these points are reinforced. And so in all of his speeches in Acts, he emphasizes the fact that Jesus was crucified. The apostle is presenting this case of God's involvement in this. He would have to gather Old Testament passages which showed that God had decreed that this should be necessary for men's salvation. So what Peter's saying and what he's saying to us is that God was involved. God was God's determinate counsel that the Lord Jesus Christ would, would be sacrificed. It was necessary that he would go to his death for men's salvation. It was emphasized. Peter emphasized that in all his speeches. And so how did Peter then convince the Jews who were listening? Well, he would go back to the Old Testament scriptures and this, and this, this part of the Old Testament scriptures is not mentioned in our record of Acts chapter two. But I like to think that we've only got snippets of Peter's speech here. And Peter and the other apostles would have opened up passages like the servant prophecies from Isaiah 42 through to 53, in which God speaks to show the following about this man, this Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that he would be able to prove that which had happened to the Messiah was according to the determinate counsel of God, that he would be able to show from these passages that of his servant, it would be he that he would uphold, that of his servant who would be despised and rejected of men, whose days would be prolonged, by whose stripes men would be healed, he would bear their iniquities, he would see his seed, and in whose hands the pleasure of the Lord would prosper. Now the Jews knew all those passages from Isaiah 53, and Peter's saying they're referring to this man Jesus Christ and to nobody else. This would have been a revelation to the Jews. Of course, we understand that. It goes for us without saying, but for the Jews to hear that, that those Old Testament prophecies related to Jesus Christ, they'd be saying, well, this is news to us. And it is the great news. It is God's plan and purpose down through the ages, outlined in the Old Testament scriptures and brought to pass in the sacrifice and the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter's appeal was based on these three things. His appeal to the Jews on his first point that he was a man approved of God. Peter could appeal to their common experience and their knowledge of the wonders and signs that Jesus had done. Everybody in Judea 
would have heard of something of Jesus Christ. Many would have seen what he had done. That was his first point. He was a man approved of God. His second point was that his death was the determinate counsel of God. God had determined beforehand that Jesus Christ would die. And to prove that, Peter appealed to the scriptures. And no Jew could refute the scriptures. And he'd already, I've already mentioned Isaiah 53, but he appeals to other passages of the scripture to reinforce his argument. And then his third point would clinch the whole point of the argument, the resurrection of the Messiah. He was going to prove that the Old Testament scriptures prophesied about this Messiah who would be raised up from the grave. And this man, Jesus Christ, has been raised from the grave. He is, he is none other than the Messiah. And so this would prove above all peradventure that Jesus must be the one about whom the testimonies were concerned. And so, you know, when this presentation was done, and we get right through to the end of um, Acts chapter 2, and we'll come to it eventually, but I'd just like to look at the words now, that the presentation of Peter was so effective in appealing to the Old Testament scriptures, it says, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. Now, it, the word of God, they knew their Old Testament scriptures. They were pricked in their hearts. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And of course, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, also, God willing, we're going to come to that too. When it says they shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift wasn't the Holy Spirit. Now, the Pentecostals believe, the evangelicals believe, that that verse there means to accept Jesus Christ, you get this gift of the Holy Spirit. That's not what that verse is saying, and I'll explain that to you in detail when we get to it. We're still dealing with Peter presenting his argument now, and it made such an impact that they were pricked in their hearts because they knew their scriptures, and now it was all put together that this man was the one that the scriptures were all about, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so he starts to quote to them, going back now in the earlier parts of Acts chapter 2, he starts to quote to them some other passages now from the Old Testament scriptures in verse 25, and he, he appeals to David. And he says in Acts 2 verse 25, for David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou also hast made, me, made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. And of course, where he's quoting from is from Psalm 16. Now, as Peter says those words, the Jews who knew their Old Testament scripture said, oh, well, he's quoting Psalm 16. And here's Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set Yahweh always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in the grave, 
neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Not a direct quotation, the words have changed a little bit, but we can see it is that quotation and the Jews would have recognised that quotation that he's appealing now to the Old Testament scriptures. And he's saying, look, David testified about somebody, somebody whose ways were pleasing to God, somebody who always walked in the light of God's counsel, somebody whose flesh would rest in hope, because his body would not be left in the grave and that resurrection would come soon after his death, even before corruption had set in. And Peter now says, well, it's not David. If you're thinking it's David, it's not David because he says in verse 29, he says, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us to this day. So it's not David. So it's got to be somebody else. And who is it? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if David wasn't speaking of himself, which couldn't be, he must be speaking of somebody else. And who did he speak about? Well, you see, he says in verse 30, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ or the Messiah, to sit on his throne. Now, Peter was quoting another Old Testament passage of Scripture here. I'll give you a couple of seconds to think about where that quote would come from. Of the fruit of his loins, he would raise up Messiah to sit upon his throne. Well, that quote comes from Second Samuel 7. He would make his seed, give him a seed, which would proceed out of his bowels and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jews once again would say, oh yeah, that passage, we know that this way, David was speaking about somebody else who would be born after him and I would establish, so it's not referring to David. This man who's the Messiah must be a man who's raised from the dead because David is dead and buried. He was going to come after David. So it must be a man who's raised from the dead. So he says in verse 31, he's seeing, therefore, he's seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in the grave, neither his flesh did see corruption. You see, Peter says in, in verse 30, he would raise up. So the word raise up is, is the word which speaks of standing up in resurrection. And the Jews would have understood that language. It's talking about resurrection. God would resurrect this Messiah and he would come out of David's loins, but he would be a resurrected Messiah, a man raised from the dead. Of the fruit of his loins, he would raise up Messiah to sit on his throne and use the word there, anastemi, it means to raise up from the dead in the Greek. So the Jews would have known on that day. This man hath God raised up. And so he says, this Jesus, God has raised him. Therefore, he must be the Messiah 
He is the only one that God has raised to eternal life. People's lives have been restored. There was Elijah and Elisha, and of course there was Lazarus, but they weren't resurrected. They weren't raised to eternal life. They died again. This is the only man that has been raised to eternal life, Jesus Christ. And that's who the Old Testament scriptures are talking about. Therefore, he says, if this Jesus is raised, where is he? And so he says in verse 33, therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath now shed forth this which ye now see and hear. So now Peter quotes further passages and of course that's another quotation as you can see on the screen there from psalm 16 at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore peter says therefore being by the right hand of god and exalted but peter now quotes further passages to show that the messiah whoever he must be must not only be a resurrected man but a man who has a session at god's right hand before he assumes the office of Messiahship, before he returns to the earth and becomes the king, he must spend a period of time at the right hand of God. And the Old Testament passages say that. And that's what Peter is teaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so Peter, by using another word now, the word exalted, let's go back to that previous screen. Therefore, being by the right hand of God and exalted. Now, Peter uses the word exalted. He's directing his listeners to another psalm now. So he's, he's turning now from Psalm 16, and he's, he's using this word exalted, which in the Greek is hypsu, which means to lift up, not necessarily resurrected, but to lift up. To, to And the word exalted connects us with Psalm 68 this time and verse 18 i think i've got that on the screen yes i have there it is thou hast ascended on high thou hast led captivity captive thou hast received gifts from men yea for the rebellious also that yahweh elohim might dwell amongst them the word ascended on high as you can see on the screen there ascended is the same word hypsu as exalted to lift up peter is now quoting from psalm 68 the septuagint says thou hast gone up on high so peter's words now are taking us back to psalm 68 so peter just gets deeper and deeper into the old testament scriptures now this is quite a a, a, a in-depth uh, exposition now of the words of peter taken from Psalm 68. So I'm just going to open the door a little bit and we'll save the rest of it because it's nearly eight o'clock. Uh, we'll save the rest of it, uh, God willing, for the continuation of the class Wednesday night. But let's just uh, move on and just have a little bit of a look. So why is Peter drawing from Psalm 68 and verse 18? What is Psalm 68 all about? Well, Psalm 68 initially deals with God coming down at the Exodus and delivering his people. And I think I've got the words here on the, screen, on the screen, yes. Psalm 68, verses seven and eight, 
O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness, consider, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God, even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. So Psalm 68 deals with God coming down at the Exodus and delivering his people. And this deliverance is expressed in the terms of thou hast led captivity captive. That is, God left, led out of Egypt the Israelites. They'd been captives in Egypt. He'd, he'd led them out of captivity. He'd led ca the captivity that had them. He dominated that. He led captivity captive. They had been bond slaves and captives in Egypt, and he delivered them from that. If God came down to deliver his people, then it could be said that once that deliverance had been effected, then he ascended back up into heaven again. And so gradually, captivity was brought captive by God through his beloved, through David. And this psalm is a dramatic presentation of a sweep of victories beginning with Moses in Egypt, with Joshua, with Deborah and Barak, culminating in David's victory and bringing the ark to Zion with David's victory over the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians, and the Edomites. So all of God's victories in delivering his people who were captives, he had taken captivity captive. Now, all of this is connected to Peter's speech. And though this psalm speaks of God's victory over Israel's enemies, we learn from verse 20 of that psalm that God is a God of salvation, and to Yahweh the Adon, belongs escape from death. The, so the psalm is all about salvation, not being saved just from Egypt, not being saved from the Philistines or the Moabites or the Edomites, but it becomes a parable of the ultimate salvation from death. And this is the work fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's opening this up, and many of the Jews who are Bible Old Testament uh, students would have, understood something about the Psalms. They would have understood about David's victories, but now he's showing them that this great deliverance, the salvation of being exalted by going to Psalm 68 is really a reference to the Messiah, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to leave it there because God willing, uh, we'll could pick this point up because it, it is a, an in-depth explanation which takes us into Ephesians chapter four, and then we return back into Acts chapter two. So, Martin, you're the chairman, so it's over to you then, and we'll just leave it there. For, are there any questions or discussion? Uh, for tonight. Thank you, Martin.